Good morning, everyone. Well, love you all very much, and it's very good to see everyone who's been able to be here this morning. Uh, this morning's lesson is going to be on the importance of baptism, and we'll be particularly focusing on Colossians 2, 8 through 15, um, but I'll be reading Colossians 2, 1 through 15 again in just a moment, kind of make some introductory thoughts about that. Um, but the reason for teaching on this lesson in particular, there's uh, a few things. So uh, at least for the first part of this year, uh, I want to focus on strengthening and renewing our foundation in the Lord. And I want to teach lessons that are really focused on that. Um, so I'll be teaching lessons uh, in the future here shortly on the church. Uh, Jesus' sermon in Luke 6 that he says is like building your house on the rock, which implies that that's foundational. And it strengthens our foundation. Um, but it seems fitting to start with the importance of baptism. You'll notice even in Colossians 2.6, in the context of uh, the um, instructions about baptism and what it says about that in verses 11 and 12, he says in 2 verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And that seems to kind of lead into what he mentions about salvation and baptism, unity with Christ, that this is a part of strengthening our foundation, making sure we're established, rooted on our foundation in Christ. And so there's, there's the fact that this is fundamental, but the fact that this is referenced so often in the New Testament letters seems to indicate that this is important to just teach on and renew from time to time. Uh, nearly all of the letters written to churches have either a direct reference to baptism and talking about kind of the bigger picture of what God did and what that meant uh, for a believer. Um, but besides just talking about baptism directly, there will be references to principles related to baptism, even if it's not mentioned directly. Uh, so, so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, it mentions that we were dead in our transgressions. We were raised up with Christ to be seated with him in the heavenly places. Uh, Colossians 2 kind of gives a little more specificity about when that happened, specifically in baptism. So for our sake, it's important to kind of renew our understanding of this, um, to think about it the way that the Bible leads us to think about it, and to continuously kind of have that really clear in our mind. But then lastly, why is this important is for evangelism. In my experience, um, baptism is something that in our religious culture is uh, more often than not, I would say the grand majority of the time, uh, not taught on or understood biblically. And that's a big problem uh, because of what the Bible says about it. And I think it's helpful because of that to realize that these things inevitably have to be talked about. You know, if we want to help people uh, be saved and obey the gospel, we really need to be okay having some conversations about baptism and salvation. Uh, if we really care about people's souls, yes, it's awkward. Yes, it might cause some difficulty in relationships to bring it up and really try to help someone think through it, but we've really got to be brave and we really need to do it. Uh, so inevitably when I'm studying with someone or even often when I'm talking to people, this is something that's, it's, it's inevitable. We've got to bring it up. We've got to talk about it, even if it's difficult. And because it can be difficult, I think it's important to be equipped to know scriptures very clearly to talk about when we're talking about baptism. So like I said, Part of this lesson is just to renew our understanding of baptism in our minds and kind of the biblical picture of that. 
But I really want you to understand that a big part of this lesson is equipping you to talk to others. So for me, it's been really helpful to have some scriptures that I know in my mind really well that I can bring up to people and can walk through it with them and even ask them questions about it, you know, as in help them do the work of reading the passage and understanding what it says. I just had a Bible study on Friday with a Presbyterian pastor uh, where it seemed like in the conversation he's never really um, been challenged on salvation, what he believes on salvation before. And we just walked through passages like Mark 16, 16, he whoever believes and is baptized is saved. You know, and that's one of those clear scriptures. And I just asked him, you know, what does it say we need to do to be saved? And he could read it. And he didn't say anything for about two or three minutes as he stared at it. And he admitted that that was different than what he believed. And so with Colossians 2, some things are said here in Colossians 2 that I just want to, again, uh, commend it to you as something that might be really helpful for you to be able to bring up to others and ask them questions to help lead them through it. It's very clear. It's very helpful. All right, so before I read Colossians 2, 1 through 15 again, just one more introductory thought is consider moments in your life of major transition or new beginning. You know, as we get older, inevitably, there are certain life events or experiences where we can kind of trace some pretty major changes back to something very specific. And it's like a landmark in our mind. When this thing happened in my life, things really began to change or like it redefined you as a per person. You know, God gives us a really clear landmark for our spiritual life, our new life with him, and that's baptism. You know, so it's important to understand just how major a moment it is when we obey the gospel and when we're baptized. And Colossians 2 is really going to help us understand just how major a moment is in that not only in our present life, but our eternal life in our relationship with God. Colossians 2, 1 through 15. I'll read this again. For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf and those who are in Laodicea. And for all those who have not seen my face in the flesh, so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of, of, uh, of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, were, and you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Something I want to bring up here as we get into um, the text is how many times Jesus is mentioned in 15 verses. So in 12 verses, or in 15 verses rather, Jesus is mentioned 12 times. All of these points are deeply intertwined with our devotion to Christ. And so all of this is meant to bring our attention more clearly on Jesus, to better understand the nature of our relationship to Jesus, to better understand how we can be properly devoted and more devoted to Jesus, the person. So 12 times Jesus is directly mentioned in these 15 verses. He's the center of everything. And even when he's not mentioned specifically, the verses that don't mention him are just extensions of the verses that do mention him. So again, Jesus is at the center of all of this, and this is meant to encourage our devotion to Jesus. So verses 8 through 10. The point I have on the board here is the fullness of wisdom, knowledge, deity, the fulfillment that we seek in life. All of this is all found only in Christ. So some of this goes back to uh, verse 3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that is hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10, in him you have been filled. Your translation may say, in him you have been made complete. So again, the idea of everything, the fullness of all things, is ultimately found in Jesus. I want to mention here as an extension of this. If Jesus came into history in bodily form, that he is a higher authority than any person or power. And this has really important implications. You know, we'll see in verses 11 and 12 that baptism is what unites us with this authority that Jesus has. But if Jesus came into history, you know, if we can, if we can prove evidentially that in history, Jesus came into the world, he fulfilled prophecy, he came into human culture in Jerusalem, he died and he rose from the dead, there were witnesses of his life and his resurrection. That implies something about Jesus. If he took the form of man, and he also is the fullness of God, then his word carries greater weight, it holds greater truth, more authority, than any other philosophy or wisdom or any other source of anything that could be deemed truth. Look at verse 8 again. See to it that makes no one takes you captive through philosophy. You know, there's a lot of things that might make sense. You know, people can make very charismatic arguments or empty deception according to, or according to the tradition of men. People may command things and say things that sound very religious, that seem like they should be done because it just makes sense to do it that way, or the elementary principles of the world. You know, I think God designed the natural world around us, but if all we're going to put our faith in is the natural world, then we will miss God. He says, be careful of these things that might sound appealing, but they're not according to Christ. Jesus is the highest authority. So often issues of our faith is who we're listening to and what we're listening to. What we are putting in authority over Jesus. You know, growing up, this isn't really the case anymore, and I haven't run into anyone who has this attitude, but growing up, I used to have the attitude where, oh man, another lesson on authority. I've heard this before. But wow, John 17.3 says, this is eternal life that we may know him and know Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Knowing God means understanding the authority he has. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. 
You know, in Colossians, as he's trying to renew the foundation for these Christians, he reminds them of Jesus' authority multiple times. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Who is the image of the invisible God, that is Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens on the and on the earth, visible and, and invisible. And notice how many words emphasize Jesus' greater authority here. Whether thrones, that's one, or dominions, that's two, or rulers, that's three, or authorities, that's four. All things were created through him and for him. In Colossians 1.16, Paul seemingly exhaustively wants to emphasize Jesus has a higher authority above any throne, any dominion, any ruler, or any authority. When we understand the importance of baptism, comes into play in that is the importance of the authority of Jesus. And if I'm talking to someone who doesn't already believe what the Bible says about baptism, this is usually what it comes back to. Are we going to trust what religious people say, what your pastor of your church says, what maybe you want to believe? Or are we just going to believe what Jesus says? So think about John 16, 12 through 15. This is another scripture that I think is really important to just know in your mind exists to bring up uh, when you're dealing with biblical discussions. Colossians is the writing of the Apostle Paul, right? But in John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus makes it clear that the writing of the apostles carries equal weight to his own authority. So John 16, 12 through 15, I've put it on the board here. This is Jesus talking to the apostles, and he's saying things that are specific for the apostles. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine or take what is mine and declare it to you. So Paul, as he's writing to the Colossians, is Paul writing by his own authority? No. Paul is writing by the authority of Jesus himself. So although Jesus in Mark 16, 16 said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, the apostles follow up with that and teach what is consistent with Jesus' teaching in Mark 16, 16. So again, constantly the conflict is, who are we giving authority to? Are we going to believe what we're familiar with? Are we going to believe human tradition that might sound really religious? Or are we just going to believe what the Bible says? And I'll tell you something. A person cannot be saved without submitting to the authority of Jesus. And this might sound harsh. But if someone does not respect the authority of Jesus, they're not worthy of salvation. Because a person worthy of salvation recognizes the authority Jesus has. And in Colossians, Paul is very careful to remind them that we have to be extremely reverent when we are thinking about the authority that Jesus has expressed through his instruction. Now note verse 10. In him you have been filled or made complete. And I think this is really important. And we're going to again see how this connects to the time when we are baptized into Christ and made alive with him. But it's not that we will be made complete or will be filled. It's that we have been filled, made complete. And I want you to think, <laughs> what fulfills you? You know, what is it in your life that you think defines you or makes you complete? Is it your career? Is it your family, your kids, your, your marriage relationship? 
Is it your hobbies, things that you enjoy doing? You know, what are things that you say, this, this fulfills me, this makes me feel complete? And what do you think? If it's not Jesus, something's not right in your understanding of what Jesus has done for us and given us already. And I want you to think, if, if we feel incomplete, or if we're struggling with feeling unfulfilled, how does that affect us? I asked this years ago to a Christian who was unstable. And I read this passage with them. We were studying Colossians together. And I asked him, what will we do if we don't believe that we're complete or fulfilled in Jesus? And he answered really obvious, really honestly. He said, well, I'm going to seek the things that make me feel complete. Or I'm going to seek the things that make me feel fulfilled. That's exactly right. If we realize that all fulfillment is found in Christ, then we are going to want to get as much as we can, as close as we can, to Jesus. We are going to want to obey him, submit to him, listen to him, understand him, because if Jesus is what really fulfills us and makes us complete, we are going to want as close a relationship to him as we can possibly get. But if we're deceived into thinking that other things in the world make us complete, that's where we're going to be tempted by other philosophies, other desires, and we may not even realize ways that we are replacing what should be Christ with other superficial things in our life. So this leads us to verses 11 and 12. What this is leading to, notice the language in verse 11. In whom you are also circumcised. So this is a continuing thought here. With a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. And again, it continues to hone in, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So when is it we were made complete? It's when we were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. When we were buried with him in baptism and raised up with him to walk in newness of life. And now, I want you to understand something. These aren't theoretical things. Uh, this isn't philosophy. And this isn't just symbolism. It's not that we symbolically died with Christ, but I mean, that's not what really happened. No, it's that we really did die with Christ. I want you to look at some verses that are around this. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you are living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Look at chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Look at verse 5. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these sinful things. You know, so again and again, the emphasis is this wasn't just theory or philosophy. This isn't some, you know, uh, theoretical thing that's happened. We've really died with Christ if we've died with him and been buried with him in baptism. You know, when someone dies, that's conclusive. When Jesus died and rose up again, his life was over in the body. And although he raised up in a physical body, he shortly after ascended into heaven. You know, if we died with Christ, we've got to understand and embrace that reality. That our life before salvation, we need to see that as a separate life. You know, a dead person can't function. They can't talk. They can't do anything productive. And so we've got to see a clear, incredible separation between the life we had before we were saved, baptized, and the life we have post-salvation. I think Satan does not want us to understand that. Satan wants us to see the transition of baptism as something insignificant. You know, it's just liberation from maybe guilt that we had for a moment. 
Uh, but then we felt guilty again, and we got on to struggling with temptation and difficulties, and life goes on. And that's exactly why salvation is brought up again and again in these letters to Christians. It's not repetitiously brought up because it's not needed. It's because Satan does not want us to understand or embrace the reality of what we've been given in baptism. And now, as far as evangelism and talking through this passage, um, these are some helpful questions that I've asked with this passage that I think are helpful for us to think about and to ask others if you bring this up to them. So, who is working here? In verse 12, who is working? What is often said in objection to baptism being necessary for salvation is a misunderstanding of faith. So someone will say, we're saved by faith, by the grace of God, not of works. And if you're saying baptism is necessary for salvation, you're saying salvation by works. So I just ask in Colossians 2 verse 12, who is at work here? In verse 12, it says that the faith is in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. All you're doing is dying. (laughs) Is dying some grand work of merit? No, you're surrendering yourself. You're letting yourself be put to death to be buried with Christ. Your faith is in the fact that God is working. And when is this happening? You know, so in verse 12 again, you know, there's this, uh, there's this cutting away of the body of flesh in verse 11. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So I asked them, them, as in people I study with about this. Does it sound like these Christians, at least, these Christians that are being written to, does it sound like they were saved before they were baptized? And again, inevitably, the answer is no. And if they say, well, maybe they were, I'll say, well, were they saved being dead in their sins? (laughs) Were they saved before they were made alive with Christ? You know, it doesn't make sense. So inevitably, the answer is no, they weren't saved before being baptized. So God is working during the point of baptism, but how is this happening? You know, obviously God is working, but in verse 12 again, this is through faith in the working of God. There was an older brethren who posed this question, and I thought this was very helpful. And this question is in response to the objection again, well, baptism is a work, therefore you cannot say baptism is related to or necessary for salvation because that's a work. So he asked this question based on Colossians 2 verse 12. What is faith and who really has faith? The person who is denying the work of God in baptism here? Or the person who accepts it and has faith in it? Who really is having faith? (laughs) Colossians 2.12 doesn't say you're being saved through the work of the water immersion. Colossians 2.12 is saying you are being saved through your faith in the fact that God is working. So Colossians 2.12 is saying baptism is salvation by faith and not by works of merit. You are dying. And your faith is that God is working. One last implication in this. Another common thing that I run into that is really important to talk about. What if somebody was baptized, but they did not have faith in the working of God? So baptism is often called an outward sign of an inward grace. As in, you were saved by saying a prayer. uh, Accept the Lord Jesus into your heart. And you were saved at that point of belief before baptism. And then when you were baptized, either that was just a symbol or a public confession of commitment. Is that what Colossians 2 
11 and 12 is saying baptism was for? Is it saying that this is a public declaration of your commitment? Now, there is a sense where the the physical immersion is a symbol of the spiritual reality of what God is doing at that point. But is the immersion a symbol of something God did at some other time previously? Or is it happening at the time of baptism? To be frank, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say here is if somebody was baptized, but it was in the belief that they've already been saved, and this is just a sign of commitment or something else, I would argue that person has not been saved because salvation is by faith, not by works. And to say a sinner's prayer and presume God saved you and that's not in the Bible, that's a work of man. That's a tradition of men. And to turn baptism into a public declaration of commitment, that's a work. That's a tradition of men. That's not what the Bible teaches. Faith is believing what God says. Faith is believing God's methods of fulfilling his promises. So again, how is this all accomplished in Colossians 2.12? It's not the work of dunking. It's the individual's faith that God is performing his work at that point. Again, I have found that really helpful for conversations. And so I would encourage you to realize that could be a really helpful thing if someone is misunderstanding faith and works. And this sets a critical foundation for the nature of our faith and just our overall relationship with God. I already pointed out the passages where he, he makes applications on the foundation of, if you've died with Christ, then do this, this, and this now. And the reality that I have faith, that as I surrender myself, as I obey what God says, then I can have confidence based in this. God is working in ways I can't even fathom. And that's going to come in the form of all sorts of difficult things I may have to do sacrificially. I just have to die. I just have to set myself aside. Obedience is me dying to myself and letting God do his work. Using my surrendering, letting God perform his work. As we surrender ourselves in baptism to God's promise, we have assurance God is performing a work that we're incapable of doing. I think this applies when we're serving others. I do very little, capable of very little, but as I just try to submit to God, my confidence is he is able to work through my insignificant surrendering, and he's able to do great things I can't even imagine. Ephesians 3, the end of Ephesians 3 really emphasizes this, that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask, think, or imagine. That's the idea here. This sets a critical foundation for the nature of our faith and how God's power works through our surrendering obedience. And it has critical implications doctrinally. So I'm going to read all of these passages, but I'm not going to be making points from them. I just want you to read it with me. And I want you to think about how this connects to the principles of the reality of what God did in baptism and how these points hinge. They literally depend on what God did in baptism. This has critical implications doctrinally in chapter 2 through tw- chapter 2 16 through 23. I'll read this. This has an implication doctrinally. Verse 16. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels going into detail about visions he has seen being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, 
As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom, or your translation may say an appearance of wisdom, in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Again, these doctrinal points hinge on having died with Christ. It is an extension of what God did in baptism. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, this has a critical impact on our perspective of life, our values, our priorities. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Okay, stop there. When were you raised up with Christ? Again, Colossians 2.12, in baptism. This hinges on that. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Does that matter? Is that important? Does that kind of lead the exhortation there of being raised up? And now if you've been raised up, then you are to seek the things above where your life is? This is critical. And then 5 through 14, this has implications morally. Look at verses 5 through 14. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with its evil practices, and having put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Again, do you see how these points of applying these moral principles and applications, they hinge on the reality of what God did in baptism. If you've died with Christ, then consider yourself as dead to the things of the world, the sinful things of the world. That's not a part of who you are anymore. That's not your identity. And if you've been made alive with Christ, then put on the things of this new man who has been renewed according to the image of Christ. These applications hinge on this reality. We're embracing these realities as we are applying these instructions. And then finally, 13 through 15, there's some final statements here in the passages we're looking at for the lesson that kind of pull together some implications of this new life that I think are meant to be extremely encouraging and very emboldening. Chapter 2, 13 through 15, related to our new life in Christ. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. 
The summarized idea is this. We are equipped through baptism to embrace being fully forgiven, not partially forgiven. This isn't like the Old Testament law where you make an animal sacrifice and have to keep coming back and then you're reminded of sins and the problem of sin year by year. It says, no, in verse 13, we have been fully forgiven. He has graciously forgiven us all our transgressions and we are overwhelmingly triumphant. So if our life is hidden with Christ, if he is our life, verse 15, he disarmed every ruler and authority having triumphed over them through him. We are equipped, we are given the tools to embrace these things. And I think again, this has important implications. God has fortified forgiveness. Now, something I've heard a good bit that I think is well-intended, and I don't think I've heard this from anyone here, but it's something I, I've heard this a lot, and I do believe it's well-intended. But I don't know if you've said this or heard this, that in order to forgive others, you first must learn to forgive yourself. And it's said in other ways too, not necessarily just about forgiving others, but this idea that we've got to forgive ourselves. Biblically, I don't think we have the power to do that. I think what we need to learn, we have to learn to accept and appreciate and embrace the fact that God has forgiven us. If God has fully forgiven us, I don't have to forgive myself. God has already forgiven me. The task then is to appreciate and embrace that reality and put more faith in that reality. Because if I can put all my faith that God has completely forgiven me, then that's going to deal with my insecurity. That's going to deal with maybe some guilt that I maybe don't need to be feeling about past sins that were fully forgiven. And so this is the distinction of this new life. We have been completely separated from our old life apart from God. And when we ask for forgiveness, we may struggle conscientiously. We are always fully forgiven as we are approaching God in good conscience. But it's not just that we've been forgiven, it's that God fortifies forgiveness. So look in verse 14. I think this is a reference to the law of Moses, but I think it has broader implications. That he's canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. And this was hostile to us. He nailed it to the cross. The idea is in the law of Moses, even after you were forgiven, you still had the law. And you were inevitably going to be guilty again. And really, you're just continuously walking in guilt. That's not how it is in Christ. God has given us an opportunity in salvation for this forgiveness to be way beyond what was ever possible before Jesus died on the cross. You know, the things that accuse us, God has nailed that to the cross. You know, God is guarding our forgiveness. It's not that we can't sin again, but it's that God has given us a salvation where he is guarding our innocence. He is guarding and fighting for our forgiveness. And then every force that can be against us in verse 15, in Christ, they're all disarmed. You know, the Roman government was triumphed over. Jesus triumphed over the Roman government. He triumphed over the Jewish government. He triumphed over angelic government, Satan and his forces. Jesus has conquered every government, every authority that can be against us. You know, it's said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? So the idea is God is our guardian. He is our protector. He is standing with us. He is fighting for us. And I think an assurance we can have is even when we sin, we can know that God is fighting to bring us to repentance. And he is striving to bring us back into a position of innocence because we can know that God has disarmed every authority that can stand in the way of his purpose being our forgiveness and justification. 
And I think this equips us to despise sin to a deeper degree. I think we've got to learn that sin is not just a moral wrong. Sin is not just when I feel guilty. There is something much bigger that cannot be seen that is at work with sin. Something defiling, something disgraceful and shameful. And we just see sin as something that is so unnatural. And it is in such opposition to all of this gracious work that God has done for us. And so we need to see sin with a bigger perspective that we are endangering all of these things. Why, why would we do that? Why would we betray God when he's done all of these things to us? You know, and in Colossians 3 verse 5, it's unnatural. You know, we died to sin. And so we've got to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to those things and put them away. We are equipped to do that because we've died to sin. So it equips us to despise sin to a deeper degree. But finally, and this is the last point of the lesson, it equips us to overflow in gratitude. That deepens our desire to obey the Lord. This gets back to the fact that we are complete in Christ, meaning everything he says, every instruction, brings us into that deeper fulfillment. It helps us experience that fulfillment. And I think that starts with overflowing gratitude. I want to point out some verses here that I think are really helpful in relation to this. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. At the end of the verse, it mentions, uh, just as you were instructed, overflowing or abounding with thankfulness. Look at chapter 3, verse 15, 16, uh, and 17. Chapter 3, verse 15, 16, and 17. And let pe- the peace of Christ rule in, in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, dwell in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And look at chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping watchful in it with thanksgiving. I want to argue something that I think the thankfulness is rooted in the work that is talked about in these chapters. That this is not a circumstantial thankfulness. This is not a worldly-focused thankfulness. I think we're being encouraged to have a disciplined attitude where we need to be thanking God more for the fact that he has separated us from our old person of sin. We need to be more grateful, more deliberately thankful, even praise God for raising us up to newness in life. We need to praise him for all of these things he's given us, for fortifying our forgiveness. We need to praise him for fighting for us and triumphing over all of the things that are against us. And that gratitude will deepen our desire to obey the Lord and it will separate us from the desires that would hurt our relationship with the Lord. So if we understand these things that God has done in baptism, fundamental application is the foundation of this is we need to overflow with gratitude, thankfulness, and praise And that will fortify our stability of peace and joy and devotion to the Lord. We'll stop there. I appreciate your patience this morning as we've talked about these things. Um, We're going to pray about these things and then have an invitation song afterward. But I want to urge you, you know, if you have not been baptized into Christ, if you've been told in your past, just say a sinner's prayer, accept Christ Jesus into your heart and you will be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches needs to be done for salvation. The Apostle Peter when the church started on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, said, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. 
for your children and all who are afar off, whoever the Lord may call to himself. This is where our new life with Christ begins. And it begins through faith in the fact that God performs this work in baptism. Go pray with me.